So if you have a bulletin, uh, inside that bulletin, there are outlined for this morning's message. And also, if you're a guest with us for the first time, we want to welcome you. There's a connection card inside the bulletin. If you'll take your time to uh, fill that out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us. And there are baskets at each exit door. You can drop that connection card in a basket. And there's a gift for you also right beside that basket. And uh, so thank you for uh, taking your time out on this holiday weekend. You stayed in town and you're actually here at church. We appreciate that. Today is the very last message in the series I've been doing on called Transformed. And our anchor verse for this entire series has been out of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, where Paul says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will prove what is the good, pleasing will of God for your life. So we are using that verse uh, as an anchor of what does it mean to be transformed? How do we become transformed and what does that look like? And so we've spent the last six weeks on this message. So I want you to go to the second anchor verse we have used, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and beginning in verse 3, Paul says this, so for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, right? So if our nation is in war, we have physical weapons that we use to engage in warfare. We are in a war, but it's a spiritual war. It's an invisible war that is played out on planet Earth and in our lives with a real enemy that we have who's called Satan. Uh, But our, our weaponry is not physical weapons. He says... The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive what? Every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once our, your obedience is complete. Now, every day when I come to church from my house, I pass several farm fields and uh, I noticed that the, the crops are starting to come up, you know, about this high. What is it that determines what crop is coming up in each field, whether it be corn, soybean, or whatever it is? It depends on the seed that was planted. And whether you realize it or not, you have an enemy who is constantly planting seeds or thoughts into your mind that is lie-based, as we have discovered in this series. And when Satan begins planting seeds in your mind, if you do not take them captive, that is, withdraw the seed, that lie-based thought, and bring it in obedience to Christ, what happens is whatever is planted will eventually bring a harvest in your thought processes. In other words, what is planted will begin living itself out. You will say things, maybe he's planted the seeds of like, uh, I'll never change, or I failed in the past, therefore I'm always going to be a failure. I mean, if you had that thought, or I, I'd feel better if I sin, or I, I deserve to be bitter. I deserve to re- retain my unforgiveness and bitterness towards somebody else, or I, I deserve to be filled with rage, or I am, I am my addiction. That's who I am, or I, I'm not worth much, or no one will ever love me. Do you know what all those thoughts have in common? Not one single thought that I just shared with you is from God. You will never hear those words from God uttered into your mind, but you hear them in your mind. Last week, uh, Dawn came and shared with us her board, which uh, I know you can't see and read that from where you're sitting, but on this board, as we, we discovered, she put down there things that people said to her, 
that were very hurtful and painful, things that she was thinking about herself. Who do you think planted those seeds of thoughts? Her enemy, right? But she believed, listen, when you believe a lie as though it's true, you believe it's true and you begin to live out that lie. And then she combated that with what we've been talking about in this whole series, how you take those thoughts captive, how you redirect, reframe those thoughts and make a declaration statement of what, what does God say? What is the truth of what God says so that I begin to plant those seeds, replace the lie-based seeds with truth-based seeds so that rather than living fear living, I live faith, a faithful life. All right, so this is what the whole process is about. Jesus, our good shepherd. I love the 23rd Psalm, one of my favorite Psalms. Jesus, our shepherd. He says, I, Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have nothing else I, I need. Why? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they cover me. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have, over, you have poured oil on my head. My cup overflows. So this is our good shepherd. And listen, Jesus, our shepherd, does not stick our noses in the vomit of sin. He rather provides us green pastures. In other words, he doesn't want you to feel your life filled with worry and temptation and feelings of worthlessness and feelings of confusion about, well, what should I do and what should I not do? And guessing, you know, it's a guessing game because your enemy has shown up and dropped seeds into your thought processes that are very deceptive. Suddenly those seeds begin to filtrate those thoughts down into your emotions. Remember, your th the way you think affects the way you feel which affects your behavior. If you're going to change behavior, you have to change your thoughts. If you want to change the way you feel, you've got to change the way you're thinking. Because those thoughts, those emotions, listen, they, they bear out in the harvest of frustration, anger, despondency, hopelessness, uh, embarrassment, um, inadequacy, shame, guilt. Now watch this. From those emotions you begin to formulate your beliefs. And your belief might be, well, I'm never good enough. I'll never be enough. I am worthless. I am unworthy. I, I am a piece of trash. I'm never going to be accepted in love. I'll never get out of debt. And then we spiral down from those beliefs into actions. And so we take actions. We try to numb our pain. We try to hide from our pain. We try to camouflage our pain. And when people ask us how we're doing, I mean, like, really, how are you doing? Like somebody asked me yesterday, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing great. No, really, how are you doing? But if I'm hiding, camouflaging what's really going on inside of me, then I just spiral down even further. And those beliefs and actions become a lifestyle. This is where your enemy wants you, right? This is what Satan has in store for you. Listen, we don't often think about the, what we think about. What we think about is how we feel, don't we? But we don't understand that our feelings are really emulating from the way we think. And so what happens in your life when you're emotionally driven that your emotions are in the driver's seat of your life and you have decisions to make. 
Many years ago, I heard a message by Dr. Charles Stanley. This has been like, like 30 years ago. And I'll never forget when it was a message on decision making. And he said, he used the word halt. He said, listen, don't ever make a life-changing decision if you are hurting, if you're angry, if you're lonely, or if you are tired. Worst time in the world to do that. Why? Because you're making decisions not based on what maybe God is saying. You're making decisions that are totally emotionally driven. And since our hearts are kind of deceptive, if you've not noticed, uh, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that God spoke when in fact he has not spoken. So the Apostle Paul clearly says to us over and over again, listen, we can change the way we think. We can change the way that we feel and the direction of our lives by this process of what we're talking about, transforming the way you, and so our tagline has been, if you want to change your life, you got to change the way you think, because until that changes, nothing really changes in your life. So we're going through this process uh, of what does that mean, what does that look like? If you really dig under the thoughts that you have, I'm talking about, you know, we have thoughts every day. I mean, you have all kinds of thoughts, like, you know, what you're going to be doing tomorrow for, you know, Monday, you got the day off from work, you're going to have a barbecue, you're going to, what are you going to do? And we have thoughts about spreadsheets and emails and all kinds of things that we think about day in and day out, but we don't really think about the, the driving, consuming thoughts that underlie everything that formulates the grid of our, our mind. So there are Listen, this is what Satan does. He is, he is very, in a very calculated way, formulated that grid of your mind with five very distinct lies. And here they are. Number one is the lie of comparison. The lie of comparison. Um, he's a really good salesman. He tells you exactly what you want to hear and shows you exactly what, what you think you're looking for. And he doesn't announce the fact that he's, he's baiting you for with a trap. Uh, he comes to the table and he offers to seduce you, right? He seduces us with what? Comparison. Have you ever noticed in your thought processes that how many times you may compare yourself to somebody else? Like, oh man, I wish I had that. And I don't know why they get, they're being so blessed. I don't, I'm not being blessed and my, their life seems to be going so well and my life's not going well at all. And so he gets us into that rut of comparison and begins to formulate the grid of our thought processes through that because if he can get you to do that, he'll mix a little jealousy, sift in a little coveting, a dash of woe is me. And now it's like over time, it's like, God isn't good, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me, God isn't concerned about me, because every time I do what? When I make those statements, when I have those thoughts, I'm constantly comparing myself to somebody else. Why is God doing it for them, but he's not doing it for me? Why is it they always seem to get the breaks, but I always seem to never get a break? Why is it that it always works out for them, even though their life is in a mess, but my life is, I'm trying to live for the Lord and walk with the Lord, but my life just seems to be in shambles? Why is that? And so those, that can become a very dominant-based controlling thought uh, that you don't even realize necessarily that is there. Here's the second one, the lie of hopelessness. Life is hopeless. There's no way out. You know, just chuck it all, quit, and die. Where did you hear those words of gloom and doubt? Not from God. He's not the source of that. Jesus says, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm there with you. I've never left you. I've never vacated your side I've indwelt you with my Holy Spirit that where you go, he goes. You're in the valley, he's in the valley with you. 
In fact, there's nowhere you can go to escape the Holy Spirit if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, God never promised to deliver us from trouble. What he did promise was to see us through our trouble. There's a big difference. Right? We're always wanting God to remove everything when God was saying, no, 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 I'm going to let you go through this process, but I'm there in there with you because I'm doing something through this process in your life. I'm molding you and fashioning you into the image of Jesus. And if you just hang on long enough, when you get on the other side, there's something, there's a person there. I, I'm going to use you in order to minister to their life. There's the lie of worthlessness. How many of you heard the words over and over in your mind, or you say to yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm worthless? And, uh, you know, that's the, the anthem of the pit of hell. It's, it's crippling, it's debilitating, it's paralyzing, it is suffocating. The lie whispers to you that you are worthless, useless, that you never have what it takes. Is, God, is that what God's saying to you? Absolutely not. What about the lie of conspiracy? The live conspiracy says, everybody's against me. Nobody likes me. Everybody's against me. You ever walked into your office and, and, and nobody said hi to you? You sat down at your desk and you thought, well, man, nobody must like me in my office. I don't, I, nobody likes me at work. Or maybe people are gathered together in the corner and they're talking and they kind of look over your way and you're like, oh, they're talking about me. I know they're talking. They, they all must hate me. Or maybe you're the person that just don't get, you don't get invited to the parties and you don't get invited to the barbecues and you don't, you, you don't receive those invitations and you assume that everybody is against you, nobody likes you. Listen, somewhere in your past, you developed this defensive posture of an untrusting nature and now it has become your default thought process. And as a result of protecting yourself emotionally, you begin to erect walls to protect yourself. And they are tall and they are thick. All lie-based, all enemy-driven, planted seeds in your mind that you not only entertained, you accepted as truth and fact. Number five, the lie of no way out. Man, there's no way out. There's nowhere to turn, nowhere to run, no chance of ever living free again. The consequences of your bad decisions are going to follow you and haunt you the rest of your life. Is that true? Does that have to be true? It doesn't have to be true. We've all made huge mistakes. We've all made bad decisions. We've all suffered consequences of our actions. But is it God's desire that you constantly are haunted by those consequences, that you're dogged by those consequences, that you will never be alleviated from those consequences? That's not God at all. But if that's my default comparison thought process, I will convince myself that lie is truth and I will live my life on the basis of that truth that's really built and based upon Satan's lies. So you learn to take your thoughts captive to change your life. And the more you learn to do that, the more you begin to reflect the life of Jesus. This is why Paul said, do not be conformed any longer to this world. Right? Your mind has been conformed to the world. What God wants to do is to transform it so you're no longer thinking like the world thinks. You're no longer viewing life through the worldview of the world without Jesus. He wants, to, he wants to radically transform your life. And I want you to remember this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's one you ought to commit to memory. Listen, we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. Now, what we want to learn is, and what we've learned is how to strap on the new. 
Jesus has done everything necessary for you to experience transformation, but there is a process that you have to go through in order to experience what he's already laid hold of for your life and mine. So we've given you these steps of transformation. I'm just going to highlight. I'm going to give you a kind of one out of my own life. And first one I says, recognize your biggest stronghold. What is your biggest stronghold in life? You've got more than one. You've got multiple ones. I'm just saying, listen, take your biggest one, write down the thoughts like Don did. What did people say to you that hurt you? What kind of thoughts keep rolling around in your mind pertaining to yourself? What you're fleshing out is what a stronghold. Remember, a stronghold is a mental fortress. It is a place by which Satan operates in your life because he's going to keep beating that drum, that lie-based thought process, until you, take, until you capture it and take it in, under obedience to Christ and demolish that stronghold and replace the lie with truth. So for me, for example, one of my core lies, when God called me in ministry, one of my core lies is, Greg, you're inadequate, you're not enough. So the minute God called me, he says, why? Because I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I've never been to college. I, 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 I've never been to seminary. Why, why would God call me into ministry? And I'm a pipe fitter, man. I, this is what I do. And um, I'm, I'm not adequate. I, I, I just didn't do that well in high school. I didn't even like school. And so what's at stake? What's at stake is that I, if, I, if I never learned to take that thought captive and into obedience to Christ, I would just continue to live out my life on the basis of that lie and watch, which is fear-driven, rather than trusting God and the truth that he's calling me and to live a life that is faith-driven. Big difference. And so... The, the beautiful thing is, and if you let your natural human nature take over, you will be led by runaway negative thoughts, and you will spiral out of control, and it will lead you in the wrong direction as opposed to letting the Spirit take over. So I want you to look at one verse, and that is in, found in Romans chapter uh, 8. Look what Paul says in, in uh, Romans 8 pertaining to this. Beginning in verse uh, 5, he says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have, watch this, their minds set on what? Set on the natural desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is what? Life and peace. You want life and peace? Let your thoughts be controlled by the Holy Spirit rather than the sinful nature or your enemy. Right? The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And so the second aspect of this is transformation is you've got to renew your mind with the truth of God's word. The grid you have in your thought processes is lie-based thinking, fear-driven. God wants to replace the lies with truth so that you live not fear-driven but faith-driven. Faith and trust. Remember, I'm a follower of Jesus. As I go deep in that relation, deeper in that relationship, I go deeper in my trust in him, and then I grow in my obedience to him. What, what makes that transformation? The renewing of my mind, right? I knew, renew the lie with truth. So what was my truth? I believe my core lie was I'm inadequate, I'm not enough, I'm never enough. And it just it's the truth is that God showed me is listen. My adequacy is not in myself. My adequacy is found in the Holy Spirit. 
As a follower of Christ, I'm now indwelt by the Spirit of God. So you find truth in God's Word. And there's a lot of verses I could have, could have put down. But one, a couple of them I put down is Acts 1.8. When Jesus says to his disciples, listen, guys, I'm sending you out into a mission. I'm calling you into a mission. And listen, you're not adequate to do this. Do not, do not even begin the mission until first you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now go up and pray and wait for it. And so what did Jesus say to them? He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you might be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end, to the ends of the earth. In John 14, 26, Jesus once said, but the counsel of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. So when I stand, for example, in speaking, public speaking, never thought I'd be a public speaker. I am an introvert by nature. And, uh, you know, I've, I've preached to hundreds. I've preached to thousands before. And, and it doesn't matter. You still feel inadequate. No matter how many people are listening, you still feel inadequate. But you have to, I have to remind myself my inadequacy is not in myself. It is in the Holy Spirit. So here's the third thing is that now you have to reframe your negative thoughts. Let's reframe those thoughts. Let's stop believing the lie, reframe it. And here's how I reframed it. I said, my power doesn't come from my human ability. My, my, my power comes from the Holy Spirit who resides in me. And this is what I journaled in my, for my prayer. Lord, send your wind and fire. I want the true power of Pentecost in my life. I know I cannot be filled with your spirit if I'm full of myself. I choose to empty my life of distractions, personal agendas, unholy desires, and unconfessed sins. Burn up the dross and purify my heart so that I can be a vessel of your spirit. Send fresh fire upon my life and our church. That's reframing. I'm reframing and saying, rather than saying to myself, I'm inadequate, I'm never enough. My adequacy is not found in myself, it's found in the Holy Spirit. God tells me that that's his truth. So I reframe my thought processes around that truth, and then I formulate a prayer that I'm praying to the Lord with what I've reframed. And here's what it brings to number um, four, and that is review, review your declaration of faith. What is a declaration of faith? A declaration of faith is simply a statement that you're going to write out that takes God's truth and puts it in just like everyday language so that you can meditate and on that truth every day of your life. So you want to write it out. What is my declaration of truth? What did I write out? Here's what I said. I'm creative, innovative, driven, focused, and blessed beyond measure because the Spirit of God indwells in me. When I am weak, the power of Christ rests upon me. And so you put that on a card, you write it down, and you, you, you look at that thing all the time. Why? You are combating. This is what Don did on this sheet. These are the things that people said to me. These are the thoughts that are rolling ahead around my mind. This is what God's truth is. And then she made a, de a statement of declaration of faith and put it on there and says, now, this is what I'm going to dwell on. This is what I'm going to think upon because as she's doing that, and as you and I do that, now God is sifting out the old, the lie-based, fear-based thinking, and replacing it with truth-based and faith-based thought processes. Does that make sense? All right. This is yes. This is no. 
All right, so you write it, you think it, right? You want to get it in your head. Well, how, how do I get it in my head? This is the law of exposure. The law of exposure says the mind absorbs and reflects what it is exposed to the most. Here's how I put it. What consumes our minds is what controls our life. If my mind is consumed with making money, that will, make, that will control my life. If my mind is consumed with having success, that's what's going to control my life. So whatever my mind is consumed with is what I begin to live out. So if I consume my mind with God's truth that combats the lies that I've been believing, and I begin to sift through that, now all of a sudden God is building a new grid system that everything filters through in my mind whenever I'm facing something. So that, for example, if somebody comes up and has a harsh word for you, like they just like chew you out, ream you out, based upon what your grid's made up of, you might think to yourself, well, man, they're right. You know, I'm a horrible person. I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry I made that mistake. And, I'm, and then for days, you think about that, right? You think about what you did wrong and what they said to you. And you just roll it over and over again. You feel horrible about yourself. And then you start conjuring up a conversation between you and that person that you did not have, but you wish you had had. And how you would come back and say to them, well, you know, this, this, and this. And then they would respond in a certain way. And in your mind, you would work it all out. But what about if a person who has a healthy self-esteem and a healthy mindset based on God's word, they can take that criticism, as I talked about last week, you know, somebody gets uh, in their job, there's two people, they get the identical year-end review from their employer, and one, it just absolutely destroys them. The other one's like, well, thank you for that. I, that's going to help me to change some things and make me a better person. Well, what was the difference between the two? Not the facts. They both received the same facts. The difference is what was the grid of their mind. So God wants to change the grid of your mind. So you write it, you think it, you confess it, you speak it until you believe it. Because remember, you start rooting things out of your thought processes, it takes time. Because this has been your default mechanism for years but you're rooting these things out. And so when you, you tackle that stronghold, you go to the next one. And you go to the next one. And you go to the next one. This is a lifelong process. Now let me kind of wrap this series up with, um, with this. Number five, reveal. If you reveal the source of who's speaking in your mind, you can change the course of your life. Reveal the source, change your course. Who's speaking? What is he saying? And uh, is it, did I just think this up on my own? Is this Satan speaking? Is it God? Remember, Satan plants seeds of toxic thinking into your mind. It's always, again, lie-based. And if you accept those lies as though they were truth, then you will live as, as though they are. And so you may think things all the time like, well... Maybe I am un unlovable. Maybe I, I am better off alone. Maybe I am stupid. Maybe I, I do stupid things all the time. Maybe I have failed, and therefore I am always a failure. Here is Satan's goal for you always. He wants to leave you shame-filled, guilt-driven, distort your identity, and heap as much condemnation on you as he possibly can. 
So, it's, listen, you, let's say if you, you commit a sin. There's a difference between God convicting you and Satan condemning you. Conviction of the Holy Spirit would say, hey, Greg, you know you just lied right there, right? Yeah. Yeah, Lord, I know. What are we going to do about that? Well, I'm, I'm owning up to it, Lord. I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not shifting blame. I, this was my fault. I'm asking you to forgive me. The Bible says God's faithful and righteous to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, right? 1 John 1, 9. You know what's going to, Satan's going to, now that's God speaking. Holy Spirit convicting. What, what would Satan say to you in condemnation? You're such a filthy liar. You're such an evil person. I'll tell you what, nobody's ever going to trust you again. People all shouldn't trust you. You're just a dirty, filthy liar. In fact, let me remind you of all the past lies you, you've, you've dealt, tried to deal with, but you haven't dealt with adequately, obviously, and on and on. You. What, what's the purpose of that? It's to make you shame-filled, guilt-filled, uh, self-condemning, because there's nothing. You, you, see, if I'm convicted, I can confess it and deal with it, but if I'm being condemned, I have nowhere to go. I just feel bad about myself. And that's, that's where Satan wants you. That's what he wants you to live. It's always constantly feeling bad about yourself. And what he does is he comes and, and he comes with temptation and he lures us in because he knows if he can lure us in, uh, he can then, you know, fill us with shame, guilt, and condemnation and, and identity crisis. You ever notice if you go fishing, a fisherman never advertises the hook. He only advertises the bait. This is the way Satan operates in your life. And so he makes sin look glamorous, like it's the answer, it's the solution, it's the reward that's going to help you out. If you are down, sin brings you up. If you're stuck, it's the way out. If you're miserable, sin promises comfort. If you're outraged, sin offers perfect justice. If you're lonely, it becomes your best friend. And so at this point, we have a, a choice to make. When Satan, you know, speaks into our minds, we have a choice to make. Either you're going to take that thought, mm, this is not of God, this is purely of Satan. I'm taking that thought, I'm bringing it captive and obedience to Christ, and I'm going to confront that lie with truth and on God, based on God's word. I'm going to reframe that, say, you know what, this, this is how, what God says about me, and this is what I choose to believe, and this is what I choose to walk in, and so I'm going to walk in that truth, and therefore I'm going to make this statement of this, declare this truth over myself. Or you entertain that thought. And you let it drop in for a visit. In essence, you invite Satan to your table. Now listen to me very carefully. Entertaining a harmful thought is as bad as doing a harmful deed. Let me give you that again. Entertaining a harmful thought is as bad as doing a harmful deed. How do you know that? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus says, he said, you've heard it said that if you murder a man, but I tell you, if you even have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you've already committed murder, right? You're not actually done the harmful deed, but you had the harmful thought and you let it settle and rest in your mind and you begin to let that percolate and move into your spirit. Because a harmful thought that pinches a tent in your mind Eventually, that temptation will be acted upon, period. Harmful actions always begin with harmful thoughts. That's how the lure works. And so Satan will condemn, God will convict, 
But here's the key. Repentance opens the door to grace. I just want you to know, I want you to see in this series is, listen, I know what's going to happen. Like you're going to say, you're going to all ramped up and say, okay, man, I'm going to try what the pastor's been talking about. And, and you're going to try it for a while. And then you're going to make mistakes and you're going to get frustrated. And, oh man, I, 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 I didn't do it right. I, I, and Satan's going to drop in the seed of thought. Like I told you, man, that stuff's a farce. You can't do it. You'll never change. It'll never happen. It never happens for you. Why do you think it's going to happen now? You might as well give this up. Don't do it. Just move on with your life. And the consequences of that are going to be multiple. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in life. It is what opens up the door of God's grace. It's what enables you to build your life upon the victory that Jesus has already established on your behalf. You know what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2? Here's what it says. Our lives are hidden in Christ, and God has raised them up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. That is not future, my friend. That is present. You're already seated in the heavenlies with Christ, His victory is already your victory. Now, if you want to live your life filled with guilt and shame, your identity wrecked, and all the you know all the heaping of condemnation of Satan on your life, go ahead and live that way. But that's not how God has has wired you to live. Remember what I said: the old is gone, the new has come, the new is found in Christ. So let me give you an example: grace destroys shame. Shame is a very destructive emotion. Shame is like, I feel horrible about myself. That's what shame-based lie-based thinking is all about. Shame causes you to feel unworthy of God's love, of God's acceptance, of God's plans, of God's purposes for your life, and you just feel shameful, and it causes us to feel damaged beyond repair. And what's this? When you are shame-filled, Your tendency is to hide from God and to hide from others because of your shame. I don't want anybody to know about it. And you start just kind of pulling back from the Lord. You pull back from others. And shame always imprisons you to your past. Secondly, grace cancels guilt, right? What is God's grace built upon? God's grace is built upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus who came into the world to take our place, to die in our place, to take our guilt. So the Bible says that there was a great exchange that took place. God took all of our sin, heaped it upon Jesus, and took the righteousness of Christ and exchanged it for our guilt that we might have that through a relationship with Christ. Jesus died for your sins, my sins. And he says, if you want to be alleviated from that guilt, here's the way, is that Jesus died for it. Now receive the gift that God is offering you through his son, Jesus Christ, because then God credits your account with the righteousness of Christ and is put you, seated you in the heavenlies with Jesus. You've become a child of God, an heir of his kingdom. You've been dwelt by his Holy Spirit. And the list goes on and on of benefits that I have in Christ. But if I never leverage those benefits on my behalf, I will not experience what Jesus has already enabled us to experience. 
I love Isaiah, right? Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is a prophet of God. He sees God, you know, he's high and lifted up. The train of his robe is filling the temple. And man, the temple is shaking and seraphim are flying. And they're yelling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as Isaiah sees this picture, he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. I am ruined. And the Bible says the one, the seraph, took a tongue and a coal from the altar and brought it over and touched the lips of Isaiah. And the, he says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin has been atoned for, which means his guilt was canceled. It was wiped out. It was removed. Do you not understand that there was a holy one from heaven who came off the altar of God named the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world, who died on our behalf so that he might take our guilt away and remove it and to cleanse it forever and ever and ever. Do not let the evil one keep you guilt-ridden, shame-filled, nor steal your identity. Grace changes your identity. The enemy wants to define you by your scars. Jesus wants to define you by his scars. And so the grace of Christ removes our old identity and replaces it with a brand new identity. You are a son and daughter of God, the child of the king. You are written into God's will. You are the heir of everything that God has. Grace not only destroyed shame, canceled your guilt, but it changes your identity and it redefines you. So let me close with this example out of scripture to help us kind of take this in. You remember after Jesus' resurrection, what did Peter do before Jesus was raised from the grave? Remember what he did? He denied Christ three times. Remember what Jesus predicted to Peter? Hey, Peter, I know you say you're going to lay down your life for me. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, yeah, it never happened to me. I'll, I'll, I'll die for you. Well, we all know the story, right? So Jesus is arrested. Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest. A young girl begins challenging him about being a follower of Christ. And three times he denies Christ and the, the rooster crows and he looks up and he locks eyes with Christ. Now, what do you think the enemy did with that? Shame, guilt, condemnation, ruin of identity. I mean, had a field day with Peter. And so Jesus is in the grave for three days. He's resurrected on the third day, and he begins appearing to his disciples. But if you'll notice very closely that Peter had very limited uh, interaction with Jesus. Why is that? Because he was filled with guilt and shame and self-condemnation. His identity had been ruined. He was, be, he was known as a three-time three traitor. It was like it was tattooed across his chest. Peter underst Jesus understood Peter's plight. So in John chapter 21, you remember that Peter and his, six of the disciples had gone back into the fishing business. And Peter's out there fishing. And um, do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when he called him? Hey, Peter, come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. I've got a plan. I've got a purpose. I've got a mission for your life. They had fished all night, but had caught nothing. And Jesus shows up. Jesus had originally told him, this is what I want for your life. But Peter had 
return to his old job, his old former way of living. He had ignored his new commission. He'd gone back to fishing because, again, of the guilt, the shame. He thought to himself, there is no way possible a betrayer could ever be a part of God's plan, purpose, or mission again. No way. And you know his enemy is just hounding his mind with this, dropping down into his emotions, believing the lie as though it were true. And Peter's fishing. He's exhausted. Everybody's exhausted. You ever been there? You denied Jesus. Maybe you ignored him, overlooked him, forgot something, forgot about him. You went back to the old way of life. You know, you sinned and now you're hiding from God. And this is what happens is when we sin, we try to hide from God. We often go back to our familiar place, what is comfortable for us. And it may not even be a gross sin. It might just be that you just look for a place where you can kind of do your thing without God. Because now he didn't really need Jesus. He didn't really need the Holy Spirit. He was very well acquainted with the fishing business. He needed no one but himself in order to succeed. But all of a sudden, now it's a failure. And Jesus walks up on the shore and says, hey, Peter. How about casting that net on the other side? Can you imagine what Peter was thinking? Like, are you kidding me right now? Do you not think we've cast that net on every side from stem to stern, all around that boat by this time, and they have caught nothing? But Peter obeys Jesus. Why? Because it's Christ who's making the declaration. He knows Jesus has power over nature. He knows Jesus has power over sin, over death, over everything that this world has to throw at us. And so in obedience to Christ, they cast the net on the other side and they catch so many fish, they can't even get them hauled in. And then Peter's waiting on the shore, or Jesus waiting on the shore with a fire going. Why do you think he had a fire? It reminded Peter of the night that he betrayed him. Jesus knew that Peter was tired, hungry, cold, and he invites him to breakfast. What do you think Jesus is going to say to you when he invites you to breakfast? He could have said something like, hey, Peter, I heard you denied me three times. Are you for real, man? Really? After all that we've been through? After all that I've done for you? Did I not tell you so? Let me tell you, I told you so. Why did you let me down? In my most critical moment in my life, you let me down. You are worthless. You are a hypocrite. I don't want to see you anymore. Could have responded that way. I'll guarantee you, Satan was planting those thoughts in his mind as to how Jesus was going to respond. But what did Jesus say? He says, come to breakfast with me. We often adopt the voice of the accuser in our own lives. And Jesus says three times in three different ways, Peter, do you love me? Man, Lord, you know I love you. Really, Peter? Do you really love me? Or do you know I do? I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to care for my lambs. Peter, do you, you really love me? Lord, you know I love you. 
Peter was going to be the rock upon which the mission of God was to be launched. He was going to be one of the key leaders in the church in Christ's mission. He was going to be the hero of the faith and a legend in the church. In fact, just a short time after this, Peter would stand before his countrymen and share a message of Jesus, and 3,000 people would give their life to Christ. Sure, there were consequences of Peter's denial. There are always consequences. But I want you to notice something. Jesus never focused on his failure. He focused on his restoration. And that's what he does for you. Grace through Christ destroys our shame, cancels our guilt, and changes our identity. This is what grace did for Peter. It destroyed his shame, canceled his guilt, and changed his identity. Peter failed. But Jesus wanted him to know, you are not a failure. I still have a work for you to do. I'm not setting you on the shelf. Now come and follow me. Let's pray. Perhaps you're here today and um, there's some massive, massive failure in your life. Maybe you had an affair. Maybe you've been through a divorce and you just like, oh, God's done with me. I've been divorced. God's done with me. I had an affair. Maybe it was something that was done to you, a very painful event in your past that you've just never really healed from. you just never really gotten over that. And it just keeps controlling your emotions. And try as you might to shove it down, suppress it, repress it. It just keeps coming up over and over again. You see, the life that you're living is the fruit of what you're thinking. Until you change your thoughts, you'll never change your life. Until you reframe what has happened to you in the hands of God, you'll never be set free, the freedom that God wants you to have. Listen, only the Holy Spirit of God can bring healing in the depth of your being, in the core of who you are. But you got to be honest about it. You may have to go back and say, man, you know when I felt like I was inadequate, never enough? You know what that lie-based thinking was rooted in? Because one day, my father packed his bags walked out of our lives for good. See, until that hurt is healed and those thoughts are changed, you can either live your entire life feeling and thinking that you're inadequate, that you're never enough, or you can choose to heal the hurt 
and allow God to change your thoughts that your adequacy is not in you, it's in the Holy Spirit. He's who makes us adequate. He's the one who's drawn us into this relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the one who has brought about this incredible, incredible identity change within us that can be lived out daily. So I encourage you, renew your mind in God's truth. Reframe those thoughts. Make that statement of declaration and write it, think it, confess it until you believe it. And then make sure you acknowledge that, listen, who's speaking here now? Is it God? Is it the Holy, is Holy Spirit? Or is this Satan? And you root out what is truth and what is not. And you will always, always, always remember that grace through Jesus has destroyed your shame, canceled your guilt, and changes your identity for all of eternity. So, Father, we thank you for your gift in Jesus. I pray for those who may be here, may be watching online, who have never taken that step of faith to personally embrace Jesus to be their Lord and Savior of their life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you bring conviction in our hearts about that, that you would draw them into that relationship, that they would know that there's a tugging of their heart, that that's you, Holy Spirit, just inviting them to open up the door of their life to the Lord Jesus, to be the Savior, to be the one who counsels the debt that we owe against you, who alleviates our guilt and shame, and who has given us a new identity. And Lord, we receive him as Savior, and Lord, we surrender our lives totally to him from this day forward, to follow him, to trust him, and to obey him for the rest of our lives. In the mighty name of Christ, I pray and ask these things. Amen.